From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. If you've been feeling a bit mad this week, don't worry, it's just March. The calendar has officially reached the month that determines just how long teams get to keep dancing, and all signs point to the Gators in prime position to take their best shot on the floor. On today's show, we'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter to discuss the final stretch of the regular season for hoops, baseball's record-smashing streak, how the Gators fared at the NFL Combine, the undefeated finish for gymnastics, women's basketball angling for a postseason berth, and the worst owners of all time in the PAT. Then, walk-on Chris Sutherland shares his remarkable journey from being a rowdy reptile in the stands to one on the court. But first, the road hasn't been very kind to Mike White's team this year, and it wasn't looking like their final trip of the season was going to end much better after a rough start against Georgia on Wednesday. But then, the switch was flipped, and that's why our roundtable with Chris and Scott opens with a breakdown of how they did it. Well, I mean, Scotty Lewis came out of the locker room, and I like the first question I put to him was, <laughs> Georgia hit, seven, hit its first seven shots. Four of them were threes. It's a 13-point deficit uh, five minutes into the game. And he's like, I mean, it's not like we haven't been through this before. And, yeah, they have been through it. They, were, they went through it the other day, just past weekend, and that loss to Tennessee, which was a, a, a rough game where they trailed 32-17 to 17 at halftime and rallied, had a chance to take lead late. Earlier in the season, 21 down against Alabama, but specifically 22 against Georgia at home and came back and for the what became the biggest comeback in the 106 year uh, history of the of the program but point being okay we've, we've been there before but georgia wasn't going to keep shooting a thousand percent for the game obviously and what florida did that was different was they really started playing really really good defense now i'm not going to stand and say georgia is a great team but they have averaged 90 points their last three games. They've been scoring the ball. And obviously, Anthony Edwards is a guy who's going to be playing in the NBA next year. Um, they came in with a lot of confidence. Senior night. The place was loud. And Florida's on their heels. Uh, and, you know, they've been punched in the mouth right out of the box. But give them credit for all of a sudden uh, stifling up on defense. I think Georgia missed, didn't make a three the rest of the half. I think they missed eight straight shots. They went nine minutes without scoring uh, in that first half after that big run of theirs to get out of the gate. It was a two-point game at half. Florida tied the game out of the box in the second in the, in the second half. Fell back by five, I think, and tied it again. And then Andrew Nemhard's uh, free throws with seven and a half minutes left started a, what I believe was a 10 nothing run that uh, gave them the lead for good. And, you know, starting 0 for 10, going 0 for 10 from the three-point line in the first half, you just had to figure that wasn't going to keep up. When you have guys like Noah Locke and Andrew Nemhart, guys that can make three-point shots, Trey Mann, uh, they went 7-13 in the second half. They literally took the game over. Tom Crean, uh, uh, what they were doing offensively, Georgia had no answers for. Georgia's not a good defensive team. They're a little like LSU. They're really, really athletic, but they're not very disciplined when it comes to getting in a stance and guarding people. 
And uh, Tom Crean had a good line afterwards. He goes, if they make size 50 Nikes, our guys were wearing them out there. <laughs> um, so uh, there were a couple plays that, uh, that Mike White drew up to shake Noah Locke free in the corner on three-point shots. They were, they were running Wheeler, the little point guard from Georgia. They were running him through, through screens and getting Locke open. He had three threes in the second half, uh, two in succession during that, those 10 straight points. And it's just a good, solid road win. They, you know, they held Georgia to a season low in points. Um, that's a hell of a job on the road, uh, especially like, like I said, to a team that was really uh, confident, scored 90 points a game in the last three games. So uh, credit to the Gators. That's 19 wins, and it was kind of like a gift that kept giving because Florida got one its 11th game in the league. In the locker room, they find out that LSU lost and Auburn lost. So now Florida's in a three-way tie four second in the SEC and have both tiebreakers over both those teams. Meaning if they can hold serve against Kentucky Saturday in their senior day at home, and obviously that's a big if because Kentucky's going to come in with a mat on after losing to Tennessee and blowing a 17 point lead at home on their senior day. But if Florida can win and beat Kentucky at home in what should be a fantastic environment, the Gators will be the number two seed in the SEC tournament. And that'd be quite a feat considering maybe where this team was hell uh, uh, 24 hours ago. And even a few weeks ago, I think there were a lot of people thinking that this was uh, maybe an, an NIT-type season. At this point, I think everyone recognizes they're clearly in the tournament, but a chance to make a real statement against Kentucky. A very competitive game the first time up in Lexington that got away from them late. How is this time going to be different for Florida? What do you imagine they try and do differently? Well, Kentucky, believe it or not, has actually played better on the road than they have at home the last month of the season, I think. And that, and what... Uh, just a stifling difference when it comes to making three-point shots. Now, that may sound like quite a statement considering what Emmanuel quickly did to the Gators last time, but they can't let him um, get going. And he, he's been their catalyst the second half of the season. And I know up in Big Blue Nation, the sky is falling because they lost a game. But, hell, they had the SEC title, regu- their 49th regular season title in hand already. Um, it wasn't a great look losing to Tennessee the way they did. Absolutely not. We know they're a good team. Uh, Nick Richards will cause problems. When you play Kentucky, Adams always the same. You have to get back and transition defense. Um, you can't let a guy start going crazy with whoever their designated three-point shooter is. And you have to be on your P's and Q's when it comes to ball screen defense, pick and rolls, because they start throwing lobs and start getting dunks, and they start really feeling confident about themselves. So Kentucky comes in. Gators didn't beat Kentucky at home last, last year. But uh, – uh, there are a lot of stakes in this game now because Florida, if Florida loses and LSU and Auburn both win and Mississippi State wins on Saturday, now Florida has gone from being a two seed to playing on Thursday instead of a, a double bye. So a lot to play for for this basketball team on Saturday. But they've uh, put themselves in position with, uh, you know, arguably you can make a case this was as good of a road game for them all season because they haven't played well in the road. Gators are now four and four in the SEC on the road and four and six overall on the road this season. Um, I will say this, they're four and one in neutral site games. And those four neutral site wins are tied for the most in the country this season. And after Saturday, guess what? They're all on supposed neutral sites. So uh, Gators have a little bit of momentum going into Saturday. We'll see if they can capitalize on that momentum, Adam, and carry to Nashville next week for the Southeastern Conference Tournament.
We can't move on without talking a little bit about Keontae Johnson. We talked about him last week, but really warrants further discussion with the performances he is putting up, especially against Georgia. Uh, Another key to why Florida is winning some of these big games late in the year is how he continues to grow and thrive. I asked Mike White after the game, Adam, where this team would have been without Keontae Johnson in the first half. He had 13 points, 13 of of their 28 points. He was 6 of 11, of 11 from the floor. Like I said, while well, the rest of the team is going 0 for 10 from 3. This is his fifth double-double in the last seven games. He finishes with 18 points, 11 rebounds. He was 8 of 14 from the floor. He had a huge 3 late in the game after uh, Georgia had cut the, cut the lead to 5 uh, to get it back to 8. Um, he is playing at an incredibly high level. And it's funny because this time last year, he was starting to come into his own a little bit and certainly had his breakout moments in the SEC tournament. Uh, last season, but there were still issues about his motor and how long they could keep him on the floor. And he played 39 minutes. And uh, I can't talk a lot about him. He certainly played his way into what could be some kind of mention on some of these teams when it comes to uh, all SEC. But he's playing phenomenally, shooting almost 55% from the floor, uh, close to 40% from three point range, over 80% from the free throw line. So kudos to him. He's, he is really, really uh, broken out and probably is the best player on this basketball team right now. Yeah, certainly. We'll, uh, we'll talk about where that shakes out for him next week and uh, see if they are going to make a, a big run in Music City. Uh, moving over to baseball, uh, talk about a, a hot start, Scott. They are just blowing through the first part of this season, setting records left and right. And you know, given that it's a season that you know we we're talking about Florida needing to rebound, uh, this is the way you you would hope that begins with Kevin O'Sullivan's team. Yeah, a lot of things have uh, been going right for this team and breaking a record that had been around since uh, two other times they had won their first. 11 games, 1989 and 2002, but they never won 12 in a row to start a season uh, in program history. Well, they did that earlier this week with a win down at Florida Atlantic. And it's a team that, you know, Kevin O'Sullivan, he has not been overly pleased the last few days, certainly during a Troy series. He kind of challenged them a couple of times to stay sharp because he thought maybe they lost a, a little bit of that from that weekend sweep at Miami a couple weeks ago. Uh, but the record says they, they've been pretty sharp, Adam. Uh, whenever you start a season uh, with a winning streak like they have, you're getting some good pitching. They're getting some timely hitting. And it's really, as you let in with, it's indicative of, you know, we thought this was going to be a better Gators team. And it certainly uh, looks like it. I mean, you know, you can already look at They've already got a third of the, the win total they had last year. And the season's barely started. So uh, what this has done is, you know, they ascended the number one in the poll uh, after that big weekend in Miami. And then Kevin O'Sullivan wanted to uh, see how they reacted to that. And I think so far they've uh, reacted to it very well because uh, they have, you know, getting really good starting pitching. The bullpen uh, with some guys like Ben Specht and Christian Scott. Uh, those guys have come through in some clutch situations. And, and the offense from top to bottom, they're getting a lot of different production uh, from uh, some key players. Obviously, Jacob Young is off to a tremendous start, uh, hitting over 400. Uh, he's not going to stay there all year, but he's uh, he's doing a lot of things right. Judd Fabian uh, is, is hitting the ball with some power. Five home runs already. He had seven all of last year. Uh, and then some key guys like Austin Lingworthy and Corey Acton 
having their moments. So it's really a team effort, Adam, and that's what has to happen when you, uh, especially in baseball, if you're going to put together a long winning streak, everybody's going to have to chip in a different guy here and a different guy the next night, and you got to have some bounces go your way. And uh, they've certainly been going Florida's way. Well, and also a big part of that is pitching. And uh, I know you you did a story earlier this week on Hunter Barco. And, you know, we talked about Florida's rotation. There, there was at least one question mark that needed to be filled in. And so far, he, he's been that answer they were hoping for. Yeah, this guy came in uh, the most highly touted freshman in their class. Uh, last year, this time, uh, most people expected Hunter Barco to be in some uh, major league camp preparing for his minor league season. But uh, seeing sometimes work out strange, uh, he, he went 24th in the draft. Could have gone a lot higher, but I think some teams knew that he was going to you know, commit to the Gators if he didn't get X amount of dollars. He, he ends up at Florida, and you knew he was going to fit in somehow. You just didn't know exactly where. And Well, he got one taste out of the bullpen, his first ever start past that. Then he made a midweek start, went a couple innings on a pitch count. And his last two outings, Adam, have been as the Sunday starter. And uh, that's the uh, spot that you wondered how that was going to play out with Florida behind uh, Tommy Mason, Jack Left, which in the so far, Hunter Barco uh, is getting the job done with a big win at Miami and then beating Troy in his first home start this past weekend. And, you know, just watching him, that was my first time watching him in person. He, he turned 19 in December, but if you just walked into the stadium not knowing anything about who was pitching you, you might look down there if you know baseball and say, Man, that guy looks like he's a three- or four-year professional veteran. He just, he just has this aura about him. He carries himself in a very uh, professional manner, a mature guy. And he's got all the tools. Uh, Left-hander, throws in the 90s, has a really nasty slider. So what a fortunate stroke for the Gators that he ended up at Florida. And, uh, we're, you know, if he stays healthy and continues on this path, we're going to be talking about Hunter Barco not only for the next couple of years with Florida, but I think down the road somewhere in the major leagues, uh, that's the kind of talent I think this guy has just from early looks. Yeah, the streak continues for Gator Baseball, and we'll, uh, we'll continue keeping tabs on them as they move forward. Um, we talked last week in the PAT about the NFL Combine and how it didn't matter, but now we're going to talk about the NFL Combine, but only for a little bit as opposed to three days of wall-to-wall TV coverage. But I want to talk about, Scott, the, the Gators, the Combine specifically, and who had a good week, who had a not-so-great week. So if you had to say stock up, stock down for former Gators in Indianapolis, how would you rank those? Well, you know, let's start with the stock up. I think the two guys who, you know, if you went back at the start of the year and said what two guys could possibly help themselves most at the Combine, and that was going to be Jabari Zaniga and C.J. Henderson, uh, both players going into the 2019 season, there was they were in the chatter about potential first-round draft pick and uh, All-Americans. And during the season, it really didn't work out that way for either guy. Both had injury problems. We didn't see much of Zaniga really at all after the first couple of games. He had some spot duty here and there. Uh, C.J. Henderson did come back and, and played the bulk of the season, but he missed some time because of a an ankle injury, and you could tell that he wasn't totally 100% much of the season. Uh, yet both guys go up to Indianapolis, Adam, and, and they turn some heads with physical, raw numbers that, that these guys put up in the test. And, you know, you knew that C.J. Henderson's one of the fastest players at the Combine. 
And sure enough, he goes out there in the 40 and I think posts the uh, what, second or third fastest time among the DBs. No surprise there, but I think considering the way his season played out, he helped himself just because I think that left the, the scouts and the NFL teams, okay, this guy's ankle's fine. He's getting back to where uh, we thought he was, you know, after his sophomore season. And then I think with Jabari Zaniga, he, he went in a, really more of a, a mystery because it, the sample size of his senior season was so small. And, and there's certainly a lot of attention given to him, whether or not he was going to be fully healthy. And, and Jabari goes out there and has, I think, the longest broad jump of any defensive lineman. I think the second fastest time in the 40 among the defensive linemen. So really no surprise if you followed him at Florida. You knew he has all the potential in the world to be a good player in the NFL. But again, anytime uh, you go through an injury season like he did, there's going to be those question marks. And he'll continue to face those question marks leading up to the draft as he as he meets with the teams one-on-one in the course here at Florida on his pro day. But I, I think both of those guys uh, really did uh, good for themselves. And I don't, you know, unfortunately for, for uh, Van Jefferson, he goes up to the combine and during the medical evaluation, they discover that he has a, I guess, a hairline fracture and a foot bone, which is not uncommon in football players, but it was something that had gone undetected uh, until he got up there. So now he's going to have to have surgery and sidelines him for six to eight weeks. So, you know, if there's anybody who's stuck, maybe uh, took a hit, obviously Van Jefferson, but without question, I'm sure he did very well in his interviews with teams. Uh, this guy knows about the league. His father played in it. His father is now a receivers coach in the league. Uh, Van Jefferson's going to eventually play in NFL. He'll get a shot, uh, but it looks like he's going to, you know, first and foremost, he's going to have to go through some rehab and, and not go through some of the pre-draft workouts and stuff that normally he would. And that's probably going to impact his draft status, obviously. So I don't know where he'll get drafted or if he'll get drafted or he'll have to go the free agent route. But there'll be a team that down the road that they'll, they'll use a flyer on Van Jefferson. And don't be surprised if he pans out in a couple of years. And we'll be talking uh, more football next week because uh, Coach Mon will be speaking about the start of spring practice. So football is never too far away. Uh, and then before you know it, we'll have an orange and blue game. We'll have a draft. So more football is on the way soon. I do want to hit on a sport we've hit a, quite a lot recently, Scott, and that is gymnastics and specifically Trinity Thomas, who is just a, uh, a one-woman wrecking crew through the SEC right now, as are the Gators, who both finished undefeated in their league competitions, and also Trinity Thomas broke another record. She's SEC Gymnast of the Week, what is it, seven times in a row? Is that right? Six times in a row, seven for the year, which breaks Bridget Sloan's program record, and anytime you you break a record that Bridget Sloan owns, you know that you're doing something right. And why don't they just go ahead and name this award to Trinity Thomas? <laughs> I mean, that's where it is. I mean, she is the, in a class by herself right now, Adam. And, uh, you know, if you're out there and you're listening to this and you're like, man, I'm only here to, I want to talk about baseball or football or hear these guys talk about, you know, basketball. Well, if you've never watched the Florida gymnastics meet, just watch it once in the and check out Trinity Thomas because she's an amazing athlete and you've had great gymnasts here Adam Bridget Sloan and Keecher Hunter and many others but they all have their unique uh style their their unique athleticism Bridget Sloan was more what I guess would consider a power gymnast Keecher Hunter was that mix of power 
and grace. I mean, Trini Thomas is she's so graceful. I've never seen and I've been you know I've been to enough of these matches now over the years with the Gators who where I I feel like pretty confident that I have a good idea of the elite talents and Trini Thomas is certainly in that category. But I don't know if I've ever seen another gymnast do it as gracefully as she does when she's doing her moves and stuff. It, it, she just, it just looks so effortlessly and it doesn't seem to take the toll on her body as it does with some of the other gymnasts. And uh, she's fun to watch and uh, just a nice kid. And she's the only gymnast in the country uh, on a college roster who is currently a member of Team USA. She still has hopes for the uh, Olympics uh, over the summer in Tokyo. I don't know how that's going to shake out, but she she's uh, worth the uh, price of admission. And, and she's a big reason why the Gators are uh, went through the SEC undefeated uh, in the regular season for the first time. Uh, they've got another uh, meet, see, this week at Penn State. Then they come home to close out the regular season. Then they get ready for the postseason, and it won't be any surprise at all, as we've talked about. Florida's going to be a national championship contender if uh, the Gators stay healthy. And if that happens, Trinity Thomas is is probably going to be some kind of national champion individually if the Gators make it all the way and, uh, and come away with the title. Yeah, it, it's incredibly impressive uh, what they're doing and what she is doing. So uh, we will keep tabs on them. We'll continue talking about them, especially as they move closer to the postseason. We've talked a lot about men's hoops. Let's talk some women's hoops as well. Uh, you know, we, we've mentioned over the course of the last few weeks some big wins that Cam Newbauer's team has come down with, specifically beating Kentucky on the road, beating Arkansas at home. And as they go to the SEC tournament, still hovering just over 500. So some work to do for them if they want to secure a, a postseason berth, most likely in the WNIT. Yeah, and that would obviously be the progress, um, Adam, for the program. I mean, given the state of what Cam Newbauer inherited, I mean, uh, I guess you can kind of look at uh, uh, the status of Florida going in the SEC tournament as a as a 10 seed. They don't have to play on the first day. That's the first time uh, they haven't been a, a bottom four seed, the, the program, since the 2016 season. Like you said, they're 15 and 14. Uh, would like to have that uh, that winning record to kind of get in the WNIT conversation. I, I know that would be a, a, another step forward. But, you know, in the in the bigger picture, Lavender Briggs, the freshman forward from Utah, uh, made the freshman All-SEC team. And she's averaging almost almost 15 points a game. Uh, she leads the SEC in minutes played, and that's on a wobbly ankle. So there's progress being made here. You can point to the winning record. You can point to the fact they're not playing on the first day of, of the SEC tournament, and that shows some kind of a, an upward trajectory. So you know, if you ask Cam Newbar, uh, incremental upward trajectory, sure, he would love to see more. But uh, you know, you got to walk before you run, and you know they've walked their their way into a bye in the first round, and. They get LSU, um, the seventh seed in the in the first round of the SEC tournament, and maybe they can make some hay there and uh, and see what happens from from that point. I want to move on to our PAT now, and uh, it's inspired by this uh, really strange story that came out of New York this week, where Spike Lee was apparently denied entrance into the employee side entrance at MSG, and now is furious with James Dolan and says he's not going to any more Knicks games the rest of the season, which I don't know how much of a punishment that is because the Knicks aren't very good. But either way, uh, it just shined a little bit more light on the Dolan family, probably among the most reviled ownership group uh, in sports. And it was making me think about other really bad owners. And uh, you guys have covered a lot of teams over a lot of years. So this doesn't have to be a current owner or ownership group. But I'm curious, from your perspective, 
the worst team ownership that you've ever experienced or seen or covered for that matter? For me, I mean, I, I dealt with Hugh Culverhouse, the, the original Bucks owner, some. And uh, organizationally, if you talk about the, the Bengals under the Brown family, where it had a real rough go in the Bidwells, the Arizona Cardinals or the or the St. Louis Cardinals had a rough go for so long. And in time, those uh, those organizations kind of found their way, whether it was um, an offspring of, of the original owner who kind of got things straightened out or what have you. The Bucks became a much better franchise when Hugh Culverhouse finally sold that team. And, of course, I remember it was such a, a, a clown show late because when Hugh Culverhouse died and passed on the team and it had to be sold and everything, I remember – even his wife knew what kind of person he was and what kind of bad owner he was, because I guess she said in a deposition um, when some when some stuff started to come out about how the money was being distributed, she goes, I'd like to dig him up and shoot him all over again. <laughs> um, so so uh, uh, I mean, even if Mrs. Culverhouse is saying that, imagine what what it was like dealing with the uh, Hugh Culverhouse as the. As the owner of Bucks, of course, everyone knows they, they besides starting 0-14, I believe they had 12 straight seasons, excuse me, 14 straight seasons of uh, sub-500 records. I think that's a record in the NFL right now. But if you're asking me the worst ownership right now in pro sports, and this is obviously near and dear to my heart, it's Dan Snyder. It's number one because you're talking about a proud organization for years and years, the Washington Redskins. When Jack Ken Cook passed away, the son could not afford to run the team anymore, sold it to Dan Snyder. Uh, 1999, and it has been an absolute train wreck since. When an owner thinks of himself as someone who's as knowledgeable in that particular sport, be it basketball or baseball or whatever, Dan Snyder thinks he's a football mind, and he's not. When ownership is should leave uh, all business administrative stuff to people who know their sport, and uh, that's not been the case. Uh, you look at the number of coaches that the Redskins have gone through, he had Joe Gibbs and Mike Shanahan, guys who won five Super Bowls between them. He turned them into losing coaches. So I think that kind of is a pretty good marker. Steve Spurrier went there. I don't know that that was a – I mean, I know it was a terrible move by Steve Spurrier. He could have gone to the Carolina Panthers. He could have gone somewhere else, and I think his uh, NFL story would have been a lot more successful than it was going to Washington. So that was kind of set up for failure. But uh, uh, maybe things will change up there in that organization. I don't know. Ron Rivera is now the new coach. They hired a new general manager. Uh, we'll see what goes on there. But all I know is I, I, I didn't necessarily have a front row seat for what when, what's going on in Washington. I did with uh, Hugh Culverhouse in Tampa Bay. But I guarantee Scott Carter has some uh, interesting ownership stories relative to another uh, franchise in the Tampa Bay area and ownership. Obviously, with their background, we both have Tampa owners here. But if you look at the history of Tampa Bay Pro Sports, uh, they've had some of the worst owners in history. And I don't know if any of them like, match up with Dolan long-term. I guess Culberhouse did because he owned the team longer than Vince Namoli did the Rays. And Vince Namoli is obviously who I'm talking about here. Uh, he was the guy largely responsible for getting Tampa Bay a Major League Baseball franchise. But then he didn't hold up a lot of his, I guess, commitment to building winning teams. And uh, over the course of his decade, from 1995 when the franchise was awarded until 2005 when he, he finally took a lesser role uh, as a background owner when Stuart, Stuart Stumberg took over as the managing general partner, uh, Vince Namoli was 
he was a train wreck. I mean, I think Chris may have used that uh, phrase on uh, Daniel Snyder. Uh, some of the other names that we can mention as the worst owners in professional sports history. He's a man who once uh, tried to charge a high school band who was at the stadium to play uh, the national anthem. He tried to charge them to stay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I mean, you know, and, and Vince, God bless his soul. He passed away in 2019 after some tough years at the end. So you don't like to talk bad about the dead. Well, I will share one of my, you know, I was a reporter who just came onto the scene and I didn't know much about Vince and backstory there the first couple of years. I didn't know him like I would learn him. And I remember being at Chicago at Kaminsky Park and walking into the uh, the media area and stuff. And he's yelling at a security guard there because the security guard wouldn't let him bring in his like little bag lunch of like sandwiches. He was going to have to buy you know, like maybe a snack in the ballpark. <laughs> he didn't like that. So, I mean, and, and there were stories legendary about just some of the, the pettiness and that kind of stuff behind the scenes. And then, of course, what was on the field. Uh, it was a franchise that had the lowest payroll in baseball consistently and brought Lou Pinella in near the end of uh, Namoli's tenure. And, and Lou left Seattle where he won 116 games in 2001. Two years later, uh, he comes to Tampa Bay in a trade. It was actually a rare trade where the Rays traded an outfielder, one of their best players, Randy Wynn, to Seattle uh, to give the rights to to Lou Pinella to manage the team. And uh, it was a big homecoming, big story. But by the middle of the second year, Lou uh, Lou was ready to bolt. He uh, he didn't get the promises that uh, you know he thought he was getting from Namoli, and became more and more public each season. And it would, but it's still yet. I got a lot of stories from those days and. If you're a Rays fan or Major League Baseball fan, uh, you followed it closely during those years. Vince Namoli is going to stick with you for a while. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, this this could easily be – I could tell this story and you could say it's either Namoli or it's Culverhouse. I remember when the USFL folded, the Bucks signed a safety from the New Jersey Generals named David Greenwood, good player from the University of Illinois. I think he was an All-American there. He was a good player in the USFL. And uh, he had his first career interception uh, in like his first or second game with the Bucks. And they gave him the game ball afterwards, and his next paycheck had the game ball deducted from his. Uh... That <laughs> <laughs> could easily have been a, a, a Devil Ray story at the time. I imagine you could, could lob these stories all day. Uh, maybe we'll have we'll have a whole separate episode just you guys telling uh, uh, war stories from bad ownership, specifically in the Tampa Bay area in the future. Um, but in any case, uh, we appreciate you guys sharing some of your insight there. And of course, always giving it to us on floorgators.com and on Twitter at Gators Scott, at Gators Chris. And we will talk to you next week. All right. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. If you're a fan who's gone to enough games and has decent athletic ability, you've almost certainly been in the game in the stands and said, I can make that shot. Very few people ever get to test that theory at the highest levels of college basketball, but that didn't stop Chris Sutherland from dreaming. The Queens-born son of Jamaican immigrants, Sutherland was a rowdy reptile as a freshman when he began entertaining the idea of walking onto the team. Five years later, it became a reality, but not without tremendous perseverance along the way. We spoke to the grad student about his journey, beginning with where he got his undying love for round ball. So back in New York, um, had a hoop in the, gr- in the driveway. My older brother 
and his, and the friends on the block. Um, they would play basketball all the time. And I had an uncle that was um, who uh, unfortunately passed a couple of years ago, but he was really the one that taught my brother the game. And then um, watching him play, and then he taught me at a young age. So I, I've been involved with basketball from around like two, three years old. And what what drew you to it? I mean, because obviously you've made quite an effort over the course of your life to stay involved with basketball, no matter what the cost. So why did you take to it to, to such a degree? It was probably the, re- the first sport I really got involved with. And uh, just the creativity and the freedom um, over time, basketball just became my, my go-to and my out for when I was stressed with life or if I was going through different things with schoolwork, relationships, you know, growing up. It was just the one area of my life that made sense when nothing else made sense. And, um, you know, I had favorite players. My favorite player is Allen Iverson. Mm. And um, growing up, I used to have long hair just like he did and wasn't as tall. So I was like, I saw a lot of myself in him and how he just carried himself and really just stuck to who he was during the league when he was in the league and I, I took to that. I used to wear the arm sleeves, the headband, <laughs> try to be AI, crossing over. Yeah. As I got older I just kinda kept with the sport and I started to just love it. You know, there's just nothing that could take me away from the game. It's funny because when people hear the, the you know the journey you've been on in a second, they they may not be able to square that with the fact that you put up highlight reel dunks all the time in practice and other people have seen videos online. When did you start dunking and when did you get really creative with it? Because you, you've thrown down some pretty impressive ones. Thank you. Thank you. I think uh, I started dunking consistently in the eighth grade. And then by my sophomore year, sophomore, junior year of high school, that's when I started to get a little bit more creative. But then once I got to college, that was when I really, I finally actually got in the gym, started working out. And, you know, then my legs got even stronger. And I was like, you know, maybe let's see what I can do. And then I started <laughs> to throw some crazy ones down when I got to college. <laughs> where does the inspiration come from? Where Are you getting your ideas from the dunk contest? Or are you, uh, are you taking some things from Scotty? Because I know he does a lot of that as well. Where does that come from for you? Um, definitely NBA dunk contest and definitely Scotty, um, between like me, Scotty, Keontae, um, and Trey, we sometimes have a little dunk off to see if we can throw down the better dunks. You know, it's, it's definitely fun to just be up in the air and, you know, have time to think about what you want to do. <laughs> what's the most ambitious dunk that you've successfully completed and what's the most ambitious one that you haven't quite gotten over the hump with? And if it's embarrassing, that's okay. You can tell us about it. So the most successful, I think, would have to be the 360 windmill. That one took some time. I had to practice that one a lot because to get my body contorted that way was weird at first. Um, but now I can, I can hit it pretty successfully every time. The hardest one that I haven't been able to do yet is behind the back wrapping the ball from from my left to my right hand and then bringing it up is just so it's harder than I thought it would be so I haven't been able to get that one down how close do you think you are is this is this something you might be able to do by the end of the season is this like is this a, a next year goal I think I definitely can get it but before the end of the season it's just really about practice like you just you really have to try these dunks <laughs> right and then you can get them down which is funny because it's about practice, but you said you love Allen Iverson, and he famously does not like practice. So, <laughs> how do you square that? You know, you know, you can you can like somebody for for the good things, but not necessarily <laughs> all the things. <laughs> so, I want to talk about your your journey now to being a guy we're talking to now as a member of the Gator basketball team. 
Uh, when you got on campus, you were just a student and you were a rowdy. Can you talk about the decision to come to UF? Because I know you had some chances to maybe play basketball at a, you know at the D2, D3 level. So were you recruited? To what extent were you? And how did you decide to come just to, on the academic side to Florida? So I, um, I was recruited for a Division II in North Carolina. And I had a couple uh, offers. I can't remember the schools now, but there were a couple offers for like D3. Unfortunately, I'm a first gen American and my parents didn't know too much about like the AAU system coming out of high school and coming into high school and stuff. So I didn't participate in as many tournaments that I could have. And when I um in high school, I did basketball and I participated in track and field. I was a pretty good um high jumper for track and field. And my high school coach had connections with the Florida coach, the coaching staff here for track. And that was initially why I came to UF. Um, I, I had it in my mind. Like I was told that I would be able to walk on here. Um, and then unfortunately, when I enrolled and I got here, uh, it just didn't pan out that way. There weren't any spots for me. So then I was just kind of stuck here. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, it's a, it's a top school for academics. I might as well stay. I was like, you know what? Maybe I can still walk on for basketball. And I just went on that journey. So the start of that journey was becoming a rowdy. Um, take us through the steps as you starting with Rowdy and ending with your, you're on the court a few weeks ago, how many steps did it take to get to that point? And, and what was the journey like along the way? It was a journey for indeed, um, start as a Rowdy, went to these meetings, got to meet these um, different students here at UF. We're basically scouting the other team, trying to learn a little thing we can use to try and get under their skin during the game. And from that point on, I went like the whole, I think my whole freshman season, Freshman year, I went to almost every basketball game. Um, and then from that, from being a rowdy, I mean, as a freshman, I realized, you know, I needed some extra money mm-hmm. being a college student. So then I started to work at the O'Connell Center, worked my way up to being a supervisor for the event staff division. And then from that point, I was involved in like the behind the scenes for basketball games and every other sport that goes on at the O-Dome and uh, kind of got to be around the team in a sense i'd be sometimes in their tunnel i'd be down there on the um, service level interacting with some of the players at times because i knew some of them from southwest when they would come in who and then i uh one shift i was working with a ga for the women's team and she we were just talking and she just started talking about a practice player position and you know i talked to her about you know i used to play basketball and she's like maybe you should just come and just see how, how it'd be and i was like, all right you know i'll give it a shot so at this point i'm like well you know i'm trying i tried to be a manager or walk on for basketball but they didn't do that the men's side didn't really do that um so i was like hey this will get me in the building mm-hmm. at least so i did that and uh became a practice player for the rest of my freshman year my sophomore year and um, going into my junior year, I was still a practice player. But that summer going into junior year, um, I, I realized that there was an opportunity for camps. And, um, you know, I reached out to the staff here. And it was Kyle Church, the former Dobo. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, working camps. And I understood that camps were um, the way to becoming a manager. So I, I worked camps with hopes that hopefully they choose me to be a manager. Unfortunately, I wasn't chosen. Um, but I, I just kept diligent. I uh, stayed working with the women's team as a practice player as much as I could, stayed in the building. And I think it was my sophomore year, there was a Roddy Reptile tournament, a uh, three-on-three tournament my sophomore year. The winner of the tournament got to play the coaches. And that was my real goal. I was like, hey, like, I have to get a team together. We got to play the coaches. I have a feeling like if I do that, I have a better chance of maybe being a manager or walking on if they can see how I play. 
and we so we won the tournament and we played the coaches and uh man when i say they beat our butt <laughs> <laughs> they blew us out by 30 Ooh. it was bad you know and I, that was at that point i realized how out of shape i was <laughs> but it was a great opportunity and from that point you know i got to see them they got to see me and i was hoping like maybe i'll be able to get in nothing happened there but you know you just keep keep positive and stay true to the goal so going into senior year that summer i worked camps again but this time i kind of knew some of the managers more on a personal level um i'm in a fraternity and one of my fraternity brothers who was graduating was a manager at the time and i was kind of telling him hey man i really want this opportunity and he said he's gonna help me any way he can and in this time i was able to work the camps and then get an opportunity to be a manager going into my senior year and as a manager for my senior year, it was a tremendous experience. And it was, we just got to get to see the game and practice and the traveling, see from a whole different lens and get an understanding of what goes on into collegiate basketball. And I, uh, just loved every second of it. Mm. And then going into, they, they, um, I graduated undergrad here and was thinking about going to grad school wasn't sure where i would go in the coaching staff i asked them like if i if i do come back would it be possible for me to still work with the team and they said definitely so from that point i was like you know i'm gonna try to apply to uf and get in and luckily i did it's working as a graduate manager got the opportunity to walk on and had to take advantage of it <laughs> i'm sure you'd been waiting for that moment for a really long time so how did the coaches approach you and, and what was it like when they, they sat down and asked you something you've been waiting for for, uh, you know, four, five, maybe even six years? Yeah, so it, it was um, unbelievable. I, it was right before a shooting group, and uh, I was talking with Coach, called me over, and then he asked me, you know, what do you think about us walking on? I really thought he was playing around, so I just started laughing, and he looked at me, and I'm serious. And I was like, whoa, well, I was like, you know, there's so many things going through my mind now at that point. I'm thinking like, wow, he's serious. Like, this is an opportunity I've been waiting for, like you said, like four or five years for this. And I was like, well, at that point, I didn't understand too much about the NCAA rules. So I wasn't even sure if I was eligible because, you know, I'm a grad student, like first year grad student. I was not sure about my eligibility. And I told him, like, you know, coach, I don't know if I'm eligible at this point because there is my eligibility. And then I have have my own brand business that I run. So I wasn't sure hmm. if I could have that business and be a walk on or what would happen. So I told him like, I'm not sure. And then afterwards, I uh, contacted my parents when I was going home and I told them what happened. And they were basically, hey, like, whatever you have to do, whatever we have to do, we're going to do it. And because there were certain obstacles I had to face with, um, I, as a manager, I was receiving a scholarship for being a manager, but to be a walk on, you couldn't receive any funding from the program. Hmm. So I had to give up that scholarship and you have to pay it back and then pay, now then pay school, um, out of pocket. So there's a lot of financial things that, you know, loops that I had to jump through. And I, uh, didn't know what the, if their financial situation, if this was something they wanted to do or they could afford to do, but they were, they were very, um, happy to do it you just got to be thankful for parents like that who were willing to sacrifice for the child so they uh told me that and i was like, all right you know <laughs> this, is, this is what we're gonna do this is what we're gonna do mm. and i text coach that night and told him you know if the opportunity is still there talk to my family and you know we're, we're all in for it so whatever i have to do i'll do so then it's, it's revealed to the team the team finds out and at this point, you're you're there. You're at the end of the bench. You're waiting for your moment, and it comes pretty quickly in the Auburn game. In the, the you know last couple minutes, 
Um, I know the the video I just watched actually yesterday. It's pretty funny because you know there's a few mishaps along the way. It didn't seem like you were totally thinking you were going to get into the game. But can you take us through that moment and sort everything that was going through your mind and, and some of the, uh, the the faux pas committed along the way? <laughs> yes, I definitely did not think I was getting in that game. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think they were ranked number four at the time. And I, was, I knew we were going to win, but I, was like, I didn't think it was going to be a blowout. So it's just, you know, you just sitting at the bench, you hear the crowd chanting, we want Chris. And I'm like, oh, boy this might happen. And then JB saying, JB or Dobo, he's asking like, hey, you have your jersey under there, right? Just in case. And I was like, yeah, you know, I got it on. And then I'm just sitting there waiting kind of for the game to end. And then I see coach kind of walk down a little bit. I'm like, oh boy. I was like, this might, this might be a thing. <laughs> and now I'm just trying to keep my composure. You know, just if I go in, I go in. If I don't, I don't, you know, because I, I think that was the first game of me being um, walking on. I was the first game. So I was like, right. I was like, now there's just no way. But then he calls, you know, Chris go in, and I'm running, and then my warm up is taking forever to get off. And my, it's getting caught on my arm, and then my jersey's untucked, and I go in, and then I forgot that I had this wristband on, and then I have to pop it, and the wristband fell, and then there's nowhere for me to put it, so I had to get it to the cameraman, and then Auburn players are like, come on, like I could just hear them like muttering under their breath, and I'm like, ah. Oh, Boy, <laughs> like, I, I really looked like I never got in a game before in my life, but it was just, it was a surreal experience just to be on the court, have my name being called, and it was just unbelievable. So other than these, you know, some spot roles you have at the end of games, you're also, I mean, you're there every day and, and you're serving a critical function for the team behind the scenes. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing behind the scenes and practice in the locker room? to be, you know, a force for this squad, even if you're not on the floor. Yeah, definitely. Um, Coach White gave me a, a job. He said I was the next, this was even before I became a walk-on. Um, this is kind of still when things were, um, I was still trying to take care of the, the, the procedures to do it. Um, he, he gave me a job of being the next play guy. Uh, and that just really with that, the details of that job were that when anything would happen on the court or in practice, and our guys would kind of get a little distracted. And so if they do something bad, now they're thinking too much about what they did, not necessarily on the next play. You know, my job, um, even as a manager, was really just to make sure that each player was focused on the task at hand. So whether that's this drill that we're in right now, whether that's working on getting back on defense and transition, you know, whether that's making the next shot, like I was tasked with making sure our guys were focused and on to the next play, not thinking about what just happened, because once it happened, it's over with. Um, so that was before when I was just a manager. And then when I walked on, you know, that role just increased, wanted to make sure that I was doing everything I could to help this team, you know, win. So being the next play guy and really just practicing extremely hard. You know, I, I try to come in and practice with a mentality that I'm going to go at go at guys. You know, I'm going to try and get the best out of them. I'm going to try and give them my best because if you don't come to practice and play like that, you know, you're not really getting the most out of it. And, you know, you could talk, I talk trash. I uh, <laughs> trying to I foul a little bit, you know, I'm trying to get in them, try to get under their skin, right. trying to just try to do everything I can because when they're going against the other teams, like these guys aren't your friends, you know, they're going to come at you hard. They're going to come at you with no regrets, no remorse for what they do. So if you're not practicing with that same mentality, you're not going to be prepared for when the game, when the tip hits. So, you know, that's kind of what I do in practice. I try to just make sure everybody's focused 
you know, lead by example, whether that's, you know, playing hard in practice or whether that's being having a positive attitude, bringing a positive mentality. Do you ever have any moments where you, you go to do like a manager duty and have to remind yourself that's not your job anymore? Like, do you maybe go like call for laundry? Like, wait, no, that, that's not my thing anymore. Has that happened at all to you? Uh, definitely. Um, it's, it's happened in practice uh, when I was a manager. And it'd be like a loose ball. I would sprint so fast <laughs> to get those balls. And during practice, I think like maybe two, three weeks ago, we're at the Odom practicing here. And I literally like there's a loose ball and no manager wanted to get it. And just instinct took over and I just sprinted and just like went and grabbed it. And I was like, oh. and I gave it to one of the managers like, hey, old habits. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, remember on the road, no, when we have games and we're in the locker room. Um, you know, we have our, we get our phones taken just so we can lock in. So we have to do. And sometimes now I'm, I'm, I'm the one that's reluctant to give it up. And I was <laughs> the one that was always calling for it. So it's, it's definitely sometimes, you know, it's, it's kind of funny to, to look at it. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. Um, you talked about, you know, your long journey through school now in grad school, looking at your future, What's next for you after grad school? Do you think basketball is in your future, maybe even on, on the coaching side? Um, I'm definitely keeping the door open. I'm using this this first year of grad school really to test the waters. Uh, I had opportunities to work with, um, as you know, like the basketball team here. Um, I was able to go and work with youth basketball in the in the summer. And uh, I kind of, as you, like I've said, I have a love for the game. So I, I can't see myself too far away from it. But I also have a passion for fashion as well. And uh, something tells me that if I don't end up coaching, I can see myself working with like a basketball and a clothing company or working with basketball and doing like gear for different collegiate teams or something along those lines. Or even I haven't given up hope about playing professionally myself, to be honest. So kind of just seeing where where life takes me. Well, it seems like you have no shortage of options. So congratulations on uh, all that you've accomplished so far and good luck to you on whatever's next. Thank you so much. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to visit FloridaGators.com for all the latest news in the orange and blue, including scores, schedules, and more. Then come back next week for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Gainesville.